the week of May 28th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 618, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, a very jet-lagged Jay Sperling Reich is who I am. And at the Hollywood Cemetery, hoping to raise the dead, I'm Michael Giltz. Uh, why are you trying to raise the dead? It's Break- not, you know, it's not Halloween, right? Breaking news, Milt Larson, the co-founder of the Magic Castle in Hollywood, has died at 92. Oh, that's I like sad. the Magic Castle. The good news is we will have him on next week on the show when we do a seance. I mean, why not? Oh. But God bless him. He'd had a great career. He started in live radio, went on into TV where he worked on game shows like Truth or Consequences and This Is Your Life, where his job was to entertain the celebrity guests like, uh, uh, like uh, Groucho Marx and, and Buster Keaton and entertain them and distract them until it could be revealed what the show was really about. And then, of course, he went on to co-found The Magic Castle in Hollywood, California, the cool private club for magicians. He also wrote novelty numbers with Richard Sherman of Walt Disney fame, novelty numbers like uh, Bon Voyage, Titanic, and We're Counting on You, General Custer. <laughs> so he had a fabulous, interesting career, and he was working at The Magic Castle right up to the end. But Sperling says, we don't have time for all these darn obits. Only yeah, mention the famous you... ones. And well, I say, Sperling, if we don't have time for magic, what do we have time for? Uh, well, if you wait until the very end of our uh, episode, which should come in a day or two, uh, <laughs> you'll you'll see why. I mean, literally, apparently everybody in Hollywood died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you're, of course, jet-lagged, I imagine, from Khan, aren't you? Yes, I am. Very. Yeah. Are you jet-lagged from the enjoyment of Khan or the travails of Khan? Well, you know, uh, why don't we... T- well, both, actually, which mm. uh, we can discuss the, uh, on this week's episode. Well, well, what else will we talk about? Well, my question is, did, did anybody miss us? Because I, ho- I hope so. We missed them. Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we're playing catch-up since I was playing hooky in, south, in the south of France rather than doing our podcast. Hey, you know what? I was working, okay? Working. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, I, yeah, yeah. It, look, all I know is I need to read the intros before we actually start recording. Anyway, we've got a lot to talk about. Ken was a vintage year, and we'll cover the big awards and all the big deals that happened in the south of France. The writer's strike continues, and Michael is pleased to see that many people are bringing up the grotesque salaries of CEOs and top executives. Johnny Depp, his film... Uh, Jean de Barry opened Cannes on a tumultuous note, but Europe loves him. I mean, Dior just signed Depp to the biggest men's fragrance deal in history. Michael gives an update on some other artists caught up in controversy. I mean, if cancel culture is real, and if it's a real thing, someone forgot to tell Depp and Morgan Wallen and, well, Mel Gibson. And on and on and on and on. Yeah. On Inside Baseball, oh, this is going to be important, actually. I can't wait to get to this. We'll discuss a Supreme Court case about Andy Warhol and fair use and why it could have major implications for the brave new world of artificial intelligence we're already in. It's the brave now world, not new world. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. And we're looking at box office around the world. We look at the whole week. Ending on Sunday, May 28th, we count up all the grosses we can. And the number one film around the world is Fast X, or Fast 10, the latest in the Fast and Furious franchise. It made another $188 million this week. 
It passed the half billion dollar mark worldwide. It's doing really good in China, past the $100 million mark. Not as much as the last few, but better than Hollywood has been doing for a while. So Hollywood showing some signs of life in China. And number two around the world is The Little Mermaid, the live-action remake from Disney. It grossed $164 million worldwide. So that's off to a strong opening, except in China, uh, which brings me to a little point. Journalists, do not call the casting in a film controversial just because a few racists spoke up on Twitter. That does not make it controversial because some idiot spoke out on Twitter. The movie opened up. It did very well in North America. It's doing pretty well around the rest of the world. Uh, it cost $250 million to make, so it's going to need a multiple of four and a half to five to get to profitability just from box office alone. For us to say, wow, this is a solid big success for this new movie from Hollywood box office alone, but we'll see where it ends up. But the, but the casting, no, mermaids do not have to have red hair. They're not real. <laughs> anyway, at number three around the world is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, another Disney film. That made $72 million this week. It's at $730 million worldwide. It will end up as the highest grossing Guardians of the Galaxy movie so far. And number four is another big hit. It's the Super Mario Brothers movie. That made another $29 million this week. It's at $1,277,000,000 worldwide, including one of its last markets to open up in, and that's Japan, the home of the Super Mario Brothers classic video game. They are taking the movie to heart. It's doing very well there, and it is a big, big success story. So, presumably, is Godspeed, the Chinese family road trip comedy. That made about $12 million this week, and it's approaching $150 million worldwide, basically from China. And if you know what this movie costs to make, or you have any other information about the Chinese or Indian box office, tell us. Yes, you can write to us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter, where our handle is at showbizsandbox, and we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. Don't sound bored. That's not so easy to do after a month off, is it? No, it doesn't. It's not. That is true. <laughs> so our first five movies, $188 million, $164 million, $72 million, $29 million, $12 million. And then we get down to movies that have made about $1 to $5 million. Uh, the most notable maybe is The Machine a movie based on a stand-up comedy routine which co-stars Mark Hamill. It opened up to about $5 million. Uh, De Niro, Robert De Niro, stars in sort of an, a, a spin on my, my Parents. It's called About My Father, and that made about $5 million. The Japanese anime film Sword Art Online Progressive, Scherzo of Deep Night. I should have looked up how to pronounce the word Scherzo, S-C-H-E-R-Z-O. I didn't do that. That opened up in China and made more money in this week than The Little Mermaid, which is sort of an odd comparison, but you can see where it makes sense. In India, the Kerala story made another $4 million worldwide. That's at $33 million and counting. The new movie Kandahar, a new anonymous action flip from Gerard Butler, opened up to about $4 million. Ah, and here is another Japanese film. It's not a manga or an anime. It's based on a manga, but it's a live-action film called Rohan Kashibi Goes to the Louvre, the French Museum. Uh, it made about $3 million in its opening week, which is not that impressive. I tried to look it up online. All I saw were fans saying, his hair should be green. 
apparently the character in the manga has green hair, so yes, his hair should be green. Um, looking down, there's a new movie called You Hurt My Feelings, by, or rather starring Julie Louis-Dreyfus. That made $2 million on its opening week, and it's directed by director Nicole Holofcener. Is that correct? Holofcener? Yes. Holofcener, yeah. All right. And uh, Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. That hit the $20 million mark. And Dungeons and Dragons, our in-house film critic Aaron Rich says, it's fun. He said, it's good. Go see it. That's at $208 million worldwide, though it is now playing on streaming, just like Air. Both of those movies made about $1 million this week. And just as it, well, it hit Amazon about two weeks ago, but Air is just about to hit the $90 million mark, which is, uh, I guess, the reported budget and or uh, money that Amazon paid to pick it up. That's our worldwide box office for the weekend in May 28th. You can look at our show notes and see all the movies that made money on the week of May 21st. Uh, but while we were gone, there was another big property that opened up even bigger than any of those films. That is The Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom. It opened to $600 million worldwide in its opening three days. But of course, it's not a movie. It's a video game. It sold about $10 million. And the last two iterations of Zelda, the last one in this, have really just... Uh, this franchise always got great reviews. It was always an important, significant one. But these have taken it to a whole new level commercial-wise. And the reviews truly could not be better. Uh, it's a big, big video game launch comparable to the one earlier this year where Hogwarts Lettuce Legacy opened up to big numbers. That's grosses are approaching about a billion dollars. They've sold 15 million copies so far. So big video games opened up, some big movies opened up, but the big excitement if you're a cinephile is Khan, the Khan Film Festival. Well, Sperling, I've missed Khan for years, but I was really jealous this year, and I know Khan's kind of really different. I mean, I went back to New York and it felt like the same place, but I feel like if I went to Cannes, I'd have to relearn things all over again. I know they have a new ticketing system. Uh, the badge colors don't mean as much anymore. And I know you've been kvetching about, really, things did not work out great this year necessarily. What was going on? What was the big problem? Well, I mean, look, this is a first world problem to say the well, least. Well, we're talking about a film festival. You don't have to apologize. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, so it used to be, I mean, when, when you attended Cannes, we attended Cannes together. Uh, there was an 8.30 a.m. screening. Uh, For one of, of the big was, competition films. Yeah. Right. Uh, and there was uh, a... There was also a screening at night for the next, you know, the, the, the 10 p.m. screening, let's say. Uh, but that screening at night was at 7 at night. So you could actually get work done and go to sleep at a reasonable hour if you weren't out partying. If you chose to party, that was on you. Now, uh, Xavier Dolan, and the filmmaker and actor, and Sean Penn, the filmmaker and actor, complained to Thierry Frimo, uh, that and and I know that you wanted to talk about how Thierry Fromo started the actual <laughs> festival, which we can talk about in a second. Um, but uh, that that you know what, it's a pain when you're walking the red carpet and everybody's seen the film and there's reviews out and and it's no fun. Knows. It's not exciting, right? To which everybody said, put an embargo in. Yeah. You know, make it so that you can't you publish just, your review right. until after the film starts. The, the, that's totally reasonable. Yeah. Can did not think that people would actually adhere to of the Of course they would, because then they would be not invited. They'd have their badge yanked immediately and never come back. So, yes, they and would I, follow that. I, I, I agree with you. And somebody, you know, inevitably always it breaks it each year in Berlin and Venice, sometimes by accident, uh, sometimes on purpose. Uh, and then, of course, those people get yanked and, you know, they get a ding. 
then came the pandemic. So they put all the films in the evening. The first film at 7, the next film at 10, 10, 30, 11. <clears throat> the problem is you've worked all day. And then you've got to see two films and then you've got to go and write. And then this new ticketing system, which came about with the pandemic when they in 2021, you have to wake up at seven in the morning, 7 a.m. And then like Ticketmaster, like refresh, refresh, refresh to get a to get a, a ticket. So to be clear, you're up till one or two in the morning because you've seen a movie. Then you have to write about it. So it's not like you're complaining about getting up at seven. You're saying I'm being kept up till 2 a.m. and then have to get up at seven. Right. And so you're. I will say that I was in a, by, by day four of this event, I was in a fugue state <laughs> that I, there are movies that I'm like, I think I saw, oh, I did totally see that. Is oh, there I a screening at 8.30 a.m.? Is that the, the 7 p.m. screening? Does it show the next morning or what happened? There is, but it's for the public and you then have to somehow, rent, you know, uh, wrangle a ticket. Yeah. So all I would say to them is, look, everybody, most film festivals, except for Sundance, followed the can model. They would hold the, the press screenings in the morning. People would do their work, do their interviews, and then publish in the evening or the next day. Everybody else was following that and then can change. And it works. <laughs> <laughs> the, the old system, tickets or no tickets, the old system, I don't mind the right. tickets you, so much. Right. You, can't, you, can't, you can't print your review or tweet about it or, or hint about it until the evening screening begins, right? Is that the idea? Correct. Or Correct. do you have to wait till? Period. Right. Yeah. Oh, well, good idea. Hopefully, Terry, I know he's a big fan of the podcast. I'm sure he's listening. Well, they said it was a vintage year this year, and I really did feel, wow, there's a lot of movies I wish I'd seen. It looks like you could get a, at least four movies, if not five, that'll be on your best of the year list. And that's any year you can see three of the best films of the year within a 10-day period. Feels like a really good festival. You immediately said, you know what? Last year was a vintage year, too, then, because there were like four or five great movies last year. Yeah, I mean, EO, for instance. Uh, oh, now you're going to make me... Well, let's talk about this year. Right. Because I could list list all the movies from last year. Now, we started with uh, Jean Dubarry, the, uh, well, the, which was... The opening and closing films are always poor. Yeah, and this was a basically a Versailles postcard. It made me want to go to Versailles. Now, mind you, they filmed this movie, May when filmed this movie during the pandemic, so nobody was at Versailles, so it made it look beautiful. But it starred Johnny Depp as the King of France, and he was speaking French. And you know, I know that. Uh, what did you say, Thierry Fromot started he the festival? Began the festival by saying, "Khan is not for rapists." <laughs> He's like, "You wouldn't be here if it were." It's like, "Nah, this, I'm asking you about it because it's a problem." <laughs> so there you yeah. go. It was not a good way to start the festival. I must admit, I thought he sounded. You don't need to comment. I thought he sounded a bit like a dinosaur and has for the last few years. Maybe it's time to move on. This is not his era. Let's just put it that way. This movie was a self-inflicted wound. Maybe it's not a wound at all for the Europeans, but it just seemed utterly unnecessary. You need a, a big splashy film for the opening night film, often a French film. Uh, you know, it didn't have to be this one. It wasn't a good movie, as they rarely are. And you didn't need to have a movie with Johnny Depp. And to act clueless, like, well, I didn't know anybody would care. It's like, why, why bother? Why, why get all the agita from picking that film when it's not even a good film? If it was a great film, I could understand. But this seemed unnecessary. Well, I think they wanted to play because of my when, who is... Uh, well, of course, you know, I understand. Yeah. A French film, a French director, a female director, yeah. but it stars Johnny Depp, and that's just going to create a lot of problems unnecessarily, unless you thought the film was great, which I sincerely doubt. And it was not great. Yeah. <laughs> it was not a great And the all. closing night film, Elemental, from Disney's Pixar, uh, also not is very good reviews. Um, so that's a shame. But... Uh, 
the movies in between looked like there were a lot of good stuff. Yeah, I mean, and unfortunately, uh, the first couple of days, I mean, you know, Michael, can runs like a Swiss train, right? Everything runs on time and nothing is yeah. ever late. And, and I say that because it's true, except this year, which was a problem when your press screenings start at 1030 at night and you're running an hour behind. Oh. And you've got, yeah, there you go. And it's a two so, and a half hour film. <laughs> yes. And I don't know what it is. I'd like to make a call out to uh, either the festival programmers and or the filmmakers. If you're making a two and a half hour Indiana Jones movie, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> okay. Yep. So that, let's just start there. Well, Age uh, of Avengers, Age of Ultron, right? Almost three hours. They make money. Also, yeah, but I, I will say that a lot of there, I think there were like four three and a half hour movies, Oof. including, by the way, the Martin Scorsese film Killers of the Flower Moon, which was good. Mm -hmm. It was good. Uh, it did not appear in competition. Uh, but it brought Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert Redford and, uh, and of course, Tim Cook, the head of Apple, to the Quasset. So that was nice. Uh, it, but there were lots of, and of course, Indiana Jones was there out of competition. You're not mentioning the good films. Right. I guess I should mention the good films. Uh, so I saw, um, you know what? I'm going to start off with an uncertain regard film, Animal Kingdom. Uh, kind of a weird film about people who are they get some kind of disease and they start turning into the an animals. animal. That looked fascinating. <clears throat> yeah, and it's a $13 million movie. It looks like a $60 million movie. It's really good. Well, you know, the, we can go to the prize winners because they did a good job this year. I feel like they picked a lot of the movies that were right up there that people were talking about. The Palme d'Or winner was Anatomy of a Fall, which looks terrific. It's the third female director to see their film win the Palme d'Or. Uh, Justine Triette. That's right, following... Tatane, if that's how you say it, and The Piano. The runner-up film was The Zone of Interest, certainly one of the most acclaimed films of the festival and one of your favorites. And then the Aki Karzmaki, Fallen Leaves, also got a lot of love. And then a movie that's like the foodie porn movie of the year, like Babette's Feast, that would be the film, I don't know how to pronounce it. Pado Fu. Pado Fu. Yeah, Tran An Hung, and this is a movie set in the early, late 1800s, probably early 1900s, where uh, it's a chef, uh, like one of those Michelin star type chefs, uh, who has this manor house where he and his cook... Uh, Juliette Binoche. Juliette Binoche is in love with. And uh, it has a 25-minute opening where they make a, a meal that you do not go into this movie hungry. Because <laughs> you, you, it will say. be torture. It is, it is a beautiful movie. The French absolutely hated this movie. Wow. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Everybody else, like all the Americans were like, that was amazing. Why? The French, no. Why? Why? <laughs> do we know? That nothing happened. It was boring. And I was like, like but it oh. looks so good. Exactly. It was exactly, exactly right. Uh, best writer was uh, Corey Ida, the great director for his, his film Monster, which I believe is a queer film. It has some queer element to it. Uh, yeah, I mean, so it's about two children, and it's one of those, like, uh, three, like, the story repeats itself uh, three times, and it comes from different uh, angles uh, and different characters, and it's really fascinating. Uh, it was not as strong as, say, broker or, or uh, you know, shoplifters. Or it's it's not a straight narrative like that. 
but uh, definitely a strong film. I mean, the guy knows how to make a movie, let's face it. And the best actor was a Japanese actor in the German director Wim Wenders movie Perfect Days. And Wim Wenders also had an excellent 3D documentary about Anselm, the artist. And the best actress came from the Turkish director Nuri Bilge Ceylan's film About Dry Glasses. No, uh, 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 about dry grass. About dry grasses, yes. Oh, I, uh, oh okay. Uh, oh, well, maybe, maybe that's a poor translation. You're right. Um, and that film, you know, I don't know how Ceylon does it. He's won the uh, Palme d'Or in the past. Uh, he's a Turkish director who makes three and a half hour movies. And you're like, how does he do that? Like, this should not work at all. It's about people talking to one another. The lead character is not very likable. He's a school teacher who... Uh, gets oh, a little right. too close to one of his one of his students, uh, and you're like, "Wow!" But he's just really friendly with her. He's not really, and and then he, but he's also friend. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And you're like, "This should not be working." <laughs> oh, this- and it's and totally works. I don't get it. Oh, there's a film about a French woman who falls in love with her stepson and has romance with him. Did you see that, that movie? Wa- I did see that movie. Now, this is of of course uh, the Catherine Breot uh-huh. uh, film last summer, uh-huh. which uh, you know. So there were two films that were kind of May December uh, relationships: <laughs> older woman, younger boy. In fact, what was the, the other Todd, one called? What was it called? It was called May December, and it was by Todd Haynes. Uh, and that's and, one of the uh, biggest hits of the festival. It was a bit of a surprise that didn't get a Best Actress or something, uh, but it certainly got all the acclaim in the world. It yeah. got a big deal from uh, uh, was it Netflix picked it up for North America, which is unusual. They paid eleven million dollars to get the North American rights to the movie. Uh, uh, so that's that's very interesting. So that certainly no, no, mind you, that's a good uh, that's a very good point, Michael, because you said they picked it up for North America. As you know, as you know, they like to pick up for the world because they are everywhere. Wait, right? Uh, except for in certain parts of the world, due to certain political re- for certain political reasons. Right uh, now, the fact that they picked it up for just North America it is odd to such a point that uh, in the Nanny Moretti film. Which was not very good. No. Uh, uh, as I, he hasn't made a very good movie in, in ages. There's a point where he goes to meet with Netflix. It's kind of the joke of yeah, the film. Yeah. Like, and in the film, like the two Netflix executives are like, "Our content, our product is seen in over a hundred and ninety territories. <laughs> Did you know our product is seen in a hundred? That was the whole joke. Was they kept repeating that their product is seen in a hundred and and Meanwhile, Nanny Moretti playing the filmmaker in his own film is saying, wait, I need an inciting event? When? Seven minutes in? No, that's too late. When? A minute in? No, that's too soon. When? (laughs) Two minutes in? It's just like unbelievable. So does that mean did you not like May, December? Were you not thrilled with that? I did like May, December. Okay. Uh, It doesn't shock me that those two actors, Julian Moore and Natalie Portman, didn't get prizes because they're pretty much, they don't need them. Uh-huh. Okay. What about How to Have Sex? That's another American film that won un certain regard. I think it's a British film, actually. Oh, I beg your pardon. So it, it's by Molly Manning Walker, and it is about a group of girls who are teenagers. They're really not supposed to be out on their own, and they go uh, I, I, either on a Spanish island or a Greek island, and they're going for a Bacchanal weekend, and they're all going to sleep with as many people as they possibly can, except one of them is there to, to lose her virginity. That's right. And... And it's what happens when everything occurs over the space of three days. And it, it shouldn't work. 
the whole time you're like, this really shouldn't be working. Why this do you keep saying these work. movies should not be working? Be, but, well, because you're, you're like, you kind of know where they're going, you think. and They surprise you or they just do it well? They just do it really well. So, for instance, the Vim Vendors movie in Japan, mm-hmm. it's shot in Japan. It's about a man who cleans toilets. It's, and it's, loves uh, rock and roll. And loves rock and roll. He's got these cassette tapes, and he listens to cassette tapes, and it's perfect Retro, retro. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's, he's uh, it's practically a silent film mm-hmm. for most of the film. And it, it works. It's charming. Um, and uh, did, did you like Last Summer, the Catherine Briot film? I thought it was okay. Uh-huh. I didn't think, you know, yeah, in, I thought it was In okay. trying to look it up, I ended up finding a trailer for Last Summer, a film starring Richard Thomas of John Boy fame of the Waltons, which is pre-The Waltons, where he's like this nihilistic young man, teenager, in sort of a threesome or a gay thing, and then there's a rape. Totally bizarre. Look up that trailer. <laughs> Based on a novel by Ed McBain, the crime novelist, so a very odd little film there, but uh, that looks interesting too. But that's what you stumble upon when you're looking. I'm going to go off somewhere you may not have seen, Director's Fortnite. The winner was Creatura. I did not see that. I, you know, but there was a lot of films that I didn't see. That in, you really wanted to? Well, you know, the director's Fortnite this year, they didn't have a lot of films that uh, people were interested in. They had a Michelle Gondry film called The Book of Solutions, which nobody was talking about. They had The Goldman Case. Yes. This was a, uh, that was a very interesting film set basically in one courtroom. It could have been a play, but it's about a historical trial that was, took place in, I believe, 1974, five or six uh, about a man who was a part of robberies where two pharmacists got killed. And he said, look, I'm a robber. Okay. I did that. I, I, I robbed places, but I'm not a murderer. I did not commit those murders. And it was the second of two films in that were set in like an, an, anatomy of a fall, the Palm door winner. Yes. Which the last portion of it takes place. I guess we should tell people what anatomy of a fall is about. It's uh, about a married couple. They live in uh, like French mountain town and their son is disabled, uh, you know, visually disabled. Uh, The wife is a very famous novelist. The husband wants to be a writer, but is more of a teacher. Uh, And he falls. Well, I'm not going to say, does he fall out a window? We don't know. Does he not fall out a window? We don't know. And of course the police are like, we think you pushed him out the window. What happens? Well, um, I'm fascinated. It certainly got great reviews. You took part in a poll, which I linked to in the Showbiz Sandbox thing on Facebook. People should follow Showbiz Sandbox. The Echo poll, looking at that poll and the Screen International poll and the Film Francais poll, uh, there was a lot of continuity between them and the poll winners and the people who won the top prizes at Cannes. So that's fun to see. It looks like the critics and the jury this time really were in sync. I know there was a winner for best documentaries. It was a tie. And I think this goes back to your programming travails. The two movies that won best documentary or the golden eye award are the mother of all lies and four daughters. The four daughters is the film. I think that you were like, all right, they trying to see that. What a nightmare. Well, yes. And that's not to say that it was a bad film. No, no. It's just that it was supposed to start at 11.15. They were running 45 minutes behind. Do the math. We're now seeing a competition movie at midnight on the same day where you had to wake up at 8.30 to see Indiana Jones, a two and a half hour movie. Well, he got to sleep through that, though, didn't you? Um, you know what? For an Indiana Jones film, it's a good Indiana Jones whoa, film. Whoa, 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 whoa. Raiders is one of the great films of all time. I actually kind of like Temple of Doom. I will defend that. The other two, three, 
two? No, two. Two. two yeah. Not good. Not good. I'm sorry. You cannot defend the last Crystal two. Skull? No, no, no. <laughs> or, or, the la- or the last crusade. I, really, I love the intro with River, but that's about it. But this movie, is it just, it's fine? It's fine? Yeah, it's fine. Right. It's fine. That's not very it's good. Too I, want long. A, I want a great movie, though. It's too long. It's the fe- Wang Bing movie was a documentary that was four hours long that didn't need to be four hours You know long. my role. I go to Cannes and try to see whatever the longest film playing at the fest is because it almost always pays off. I don't know if it was the Wang Bing or what, but I love to go see whatever's. The, I figure if it's a five-hour film and they programmed it at Cannes, it's got to be worth it. Well, Wang Bing is known for making long movies. His last one was eight hours long. This is a four-hour documentary about a specific area of China where they make clothes for Chinese. Uh, and it's, it's, they're made by 16, but 16 is the youngest, but 16 to about 25. And they eat, sleep, and live basically at the factory. And it's about their lives. But after a while, it's the same thing over and over and over again, which is kind of the point. They're, he's kind of trying to show you like what their lives is like, which most of it is just, you know, sewings and that's it. They're just sewing different parts. I'm sorry. What were you saying? I was on my iPhone. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, um, but, well, so, but, but these are, you know, making clothes for the Chinese population. But after like an hour and a half, you kind of get it. You get, <laughs> like nothing else happens. Well, I got, it's not- I got that some companies were really good at picking movies. A24 had a good festival. Um, and Neon, they're jokingly called Neon the, the Palm Door Whisperer because they've had four in a row now that won the Palm Door, including Anatomy of a Fall. So I'm very excited to see that movie. How did it look as far as a market? Was attendance good? Was it vibrant? Did it feel like Con? It felt like Con was back in terms of attendance and the people, whatever problems you had, people were there and seeing movies and excited. Yes, it, the attendance is way back. I mean, it's definitely back. And uh, I would just say, and this is uh, this is a legit a logistics thing, and they can fix this problem of screening movies too late and kind yeah. of this. You know, that's a problem easily fixed next year and in, and future editions. Um, so that's the good news. Uh, you know, they will always invite filmmakers that are can favorites like Wes Anderson, who's Asteroid City. Not really play that got very poor reviews. And Jessica Hausner's whose Club Zero was eh, it was about people who, you know, basically starve themselves. Right. Uh, Aki Karismaki, they'll always invite and he will always bring a touching movie like Fallen Leaves. He's from Finland. Great filmmaker. Uh, But you mentioned Day 24. Now, they had a film uh, which people didn't know too much about. It was based on a Martin Amos novel. Hold that name. There's <laughs> a reason. Hold that name. Keep that name in your in your head. Um, and you'll know why by the end of this uh, program. Uh, Jonathan Glazer, British director. Zone of Interest is about the caretaker in charge of Auschwitz. Now you think, oh, God, another Holocaust movie. Haven't we seen if, this if before? It's good. It's good. And you know what? You haven't seen this before. It was very stylistic. And it's about his home life. He lives next to Auschwitz. So it's all about how the, the banality of evil, that's what this movie was about. It was literally, you can hear the screaming in the, because his wall is adjacent, his back wall is adjacent to Auschwitz. And his family's living there with his kids. And well, it's I, abs- I, I still remember Shoah, the great documentary by Claude Landsman, which is 107 hours long and entirely gripping the whole way. And they're interviewing people who lived, who had their farms next to some of the death camps. And they're like, well, didn't you ever wonder what was going on there? No, 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 I don't know what's going on over there. The smell got bad at times. <laughs> You're like, oh my God. Like the willingness to look away is just shocking, you know? 
And, and that's exactly what, I mean, his wife, I'm not giving anything away here. His wife, played by Sandra Huller, who was also actually in Anatomy of a Fall. And in Tony Erdmann, right? The, the star yes, of Tony Erdmann. Terrific performance, yeah. A very famous uh, German, ac- German Austrian actress. Uh, and she, uh, she she's plays the wife of this commandant who's like, I don't want to move. I don't, this is my home. This is where I'm planning to live. And meanwhile, over the wall, you can see the smokestacks. You're just like, uh-huh. are you kidding me? Like, it's one of those things where the horror of everything that's happening in Auschwitz is never shown. But felt. But that's even worse. Uh, Sandra Huller is, in fact, a German actress. Okay, well, you mentioned A24, which funded this movie with, I think, Film 4. They wound up buying back the rights to this film for every territory except Poland because Poland Because they liked it so much? No, because they wanted to make sure that unlike everything, everywhere, all at once— one of the reasons they, they d- did this, they did not want this movie being sold to Russia. And that was, that was how the, the festival started. Um, we kind of talked about this off camera, so to speak, that there are production companies and sales agencies that are still selling movies to Russia. Now, they're all independent films, which shouldn't matter, but Pathé is one of them. And that was the pre-festival uh, rant uh, that, uh, not rant, that's a wrong thing. No, wrong that's, word. that's the, the word for me. The, the pre-festival uh, story, like when you need to, like the, Everybody, the well, story. Well, the Ukrainian cinema group spoke up and said people shouldn't be doing business in Russia. And they argued that many, if not most Indies were, had barely paused doing business in Russia. Correct. And that's, and you know, the Lionsgate released uh, whatever that, uh, what's the one? Uh, not the equalizer, but the other one. I, I'm back. Yeah, I think John, I'm John back. Wick. Thank you. I couldn't remember the and, name of it. And they said that they had contracts that obligated them to and that they wouldn't be doing business in the future. Right. Now, I think, uh, I think we need to keep an eye on it. I know that uh, the trades that I spoke with, they're keeping an eye. They're, what they're really waiting for is whether the studios sell off their rights to, to some of these movies so that they can then be sold into Russia by third parties. But... Well, uh, nobody would be fooled if a Paramount or Universal big budget movie got into Russia. They'd be like, wait a second. <laughs> they shouldn't be. And they Russia is the 10th largest market in the world, but it is not a signal market in the sense of even Japan, the third biggest, or, or China, or the United States. No. But now that you've lost China to a degree, um, you can't depend yeah. on it. You don't know when your movie's going to get approved. You don't know if you'll be able to market it properly, yeah. and you're not doing as well. Perhaps that makes Russia even harder of a loss for you right now, but... That's what happens when you're at war. Yeah, well, that's, you know, maybe don't, don't bomb people. Well, um, we've got just we've a got, thought. Uh, is there anything else about Khan? Well, I would say uh, the Russian journalists were back, uh, much to uh, the annoyance of many. Um, and, not, and by the way, the Russian journalists are absolutely fantastic people. Uh, however, their government, you know, if you're trying to make a, a regime change, then everybody in the country needs to be suffering enough to help push that regime change. Uh, so they were back this year. There were no Russian companies, uh, you know, distribution companies or anything like, or sales companies. Oh, I thought you said the uh, businesses were back too and that they were just the nope, journalists? Just the journalists. Ah. Uh, and, you know, so look, uh, there, you know, it Are seems that the market was going- picked... Are you looking forward to going back next year? Yes, if only to see if they fixed some of the issues. And how, and how it, was La Pizza? Unbelievable. La Pizza Kresge is still 
phenomenal. If you ever go to Cannes, La Pizza Kresge, you will thank me for me advising you to go there. Uh, I've been in New York, and it's some of the best pizza around. So that's pretty high compliment. High praise indeed. Did you go to anything at Cannes Classics, where our friend Gerald got profiled in the trades? God bless him. Yes, Gerald Dichersois. Uh, he is the programmer and head of uh, uh, Cannes Classics, which is often uh, older films that have, have appeared in Cannes that are restored. This year, I went to see a couple of films. Uh, one to talk about is Chambre Neuf Neuf Neuf. Uh, so Chambre 999, which Vim Vendors uh, yes. in, I think, 1982, filmed a whole bunch of filmmakers. What like is Steven the future Sp- of cinema? Right. Werner Herzog and... and uh, what is the future of cinema? Are we losing the cinematic language? That was in 1982. <laughs> dude, and, dude, we were just getting going. <laughs> and, and they do it again. He, does, he doesn't do it, but it's another filmmaker who's doing it. And it's from all the filmmakers that were in Cannes last year, including Vim Vendors, who was there to say, you know, it, it was very interesting because I think you could actually put the two side by side and see what they were saying. Well, of course. And it's exactly the same well, it'll, thing. it'll be like uh, Seven Up. You know, the Michael Apted series. We'll do another one in 30 years and have another. Is cinema dead? And we'll put all three together and start to see how cinema grows up and how we could see it when it was a child and now a teenager. Yeah, it's just talking heads. You only had, you know, and, and the irony is it's done in a hotel room, right? That's the reason Hotel Room 999. Uh, and they are. Uh, That's a big hotel. Well, I think they just kind of played off of 666. Um, but in the background, there was a television that was uh, like a hotel television that was like tuned to the uh, the welcome screen, which had Netflix and Amazon Prime. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that which, was intentional. I, it most certainly was. Well, we're going to move into the WGA. But first, there are a lot of layoffs going on. Paramount Global. Their domestic section laying off 25% of the workforce and closing MTV News after 36 years. My God, you would have thought the Times of London was closing down. The way the whole history of MTV News, it was kind of fun to see. But uh, yeah, I guess it's the end of an era. Showtime laid off about 120 people months ago. Vice Media declared bankruptcy so it can reorganize. The DGA is negotiating, talking to people. This is the one detail I have. They have an 80-person negotiating committee. 80-person negotiating committee? That can't possibly be right. I mean, that's, that would be insane. Maybe you should have an eight-person negotiating committee at the most. <clears throat> but 80 sounds bonkers. And so we've got the Writers Guild strike, and we've got a lot more angles to talk about. But we'll just talk about one this week because it plays into something we've been talking about for a while, which is people talking about the compensation for studio heads. We've talked about it whenever there are amounts as a reminder of how bonkers it is. Whether studios do great or poorly, the pay package for the heads are massive, and if you're fired, you get a nice big playout just for playing. The Hollywood Reporter called it a bad look when Hollywood CEOs get big paychecks amid a strike by the Writers Guild. And uh, they said it wasn't so bad this year because no one got nine figures. <laughs> it's like, yes, if you have no memory, someone last year got $100 million and this year he gets 20. That doesn't mean it's great. And writer-creator Adam Conover of True TV's TV show Adam Ruins Everything, he called out Warner Brothers Discovery David Zaslov for his obscene salary. Zaslov got paid $250 million last year, which Conover said is about equal to what 10,000 writers could get paid. The Netflix, well, right? The Netflix, and, and, and to to to, the, to that point, going back to Cannes, so he he Zaslov 
went to Boston College or Boston University, gave the commencement address to booze. He was basically right, right. booed. And then flew to Cannes, where he held a big 100-year anniversary party with Graydon Carter, formerly of the Vanity Fair editor, mm-hmm. uh, and you know was seen carousing with A-list movie stars, to which people said, look, you've got, right, you've got the writers on strike, okay? Uh, you've got the director's about to be on strike, although I don't, I think they're going to reach a deal. Uh, and Before the writers, do you think in a positive way that will oh, help yes. the writers? Yeah. Uh, it didn't last time, uh, but that's another story. But people were basically saying, look, the optics here aren't very good. You're off carousing. You're firing, you know, 10,000 people. Your, your, your news station, CNN is getting worse ratings than Newsmax, the ultra right wing, uh, uh, news source that's available in like 30% of America and you can't even beat them. Well, I'm, and you're off in, in, in can. Well, I think that's wrong. I think it's wrong when they say the optics don't look good. The fact is paying him $250 million, even if it's for the next 10 years, that's what doesn't look good. Well, that's, that's what, no, yeah. but complaining that it's about the optics is wrong. It's about an obscene salary that nobody should get when they're in a public company. Variety says good times are bad. The heads of tech and media companies get big bucks. In good times, they're brilliant. They're geniuses. In bad times, they're rewarded for navigating such difficult waters. It doesn't matter what happens. You always make a lot of money. A looming recession, media stocks down, layoffs everywhere, writers on strike with actors and directors ready to join. So, of course, CEOs rake in big bucks at Alphabet. $225 million, Apple, $100 million, and on down. They have a list of the CEOs and their pay compared to regular employees. The ratio, it's typically hundreds to one. So if an employee gets $50,000, they're getting, you know, 100 times that. So there you go. But that's just something we've been talking about for a while, so it's good to see um, that they still are. we got a lot more to talk about the writer's strike, but we'll get to that as the strike continues, hopefully for not too long. But, you know, if writers are striking... Oh, this, this, this writer's strike is not ending before September. Right, we know that because they want to kill the contracts. But no matter what happens, they can always remake old stuff. Showtime is rebooting Nurse Jackie and the show Weeds, both with their original cast. Nancy Drew, the musical is coming. Big talent behind this. Nancy Drew and the Mystery at Spotlight Manor, a musical with Alan Menken of Disney fame and Nell Benjamin of the musicals Mean Girls and Legally Blonde with director James Lapine signed on to direct. That's a high-powered cast. And frankly, uh, uh, speaking of Broadway, with Phantom of the Opera closing and Bad Cinderella closing, this is the first time in 43 years that a musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber isn't playing on Broadway. Meanwhile, Harry Potter oh, wow. and, and the Curse. Well, you could think that was just from fandom, but you're also talking Cats and Evita and all these other shows. That was a really long streak. But uh, speaking of Broadway, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child passed 1,000 performances on Broadway officially, even though they have about 1,300 performances in all because it's a two-parter for a while. I'm not sure how they counted it all up. But the point is that show's been running a long, long time. Not a single play has passed 1,000 performances on Broadway in the last 40 years until Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Only 29 plays in history have done that, including Neil Simon.
<laughs> and, wow. and old Calcutta twice and some other stuff. Almost all the shows that have done that lasted a thousand performances or no more, which is kind of the blockbuster minimum for Broadway. They're almost all musicals or dance productions, 94 in all. But 29 have done it, but only one in the last 40 years. That's Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Before that, you got to go to Amadeus, Torch Song Trilogy, Brighton Beach Memoirs, and a revival of Al O Calcutta. That's it. Not a single play past 1,000 performances in the 90s, the 2000s, or the 2010s, and now into the 2020s until Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Here in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, we don't have Broadway. We do, actually. Broadway comes tours through Birmingham. That's why we talk about Broadway, because shows play everywhere around the world, including that's, Birmingham, that's Alabama. half the time you're just trying to get to that. That's right. Uh, but here in Birmingham, we made news by canceling the Ted Nugent concert. <laughs> Ted Nugent got his concert canceled in Birmingham, Alabama, for being too right-wing. Ha! <laughs> there was a super cool neighborhood, uh, and the Avondale Brewing Company, which makes, you know— bespoke beer for people it's a microbrewery like it's literally the only hippie liberal two block radius in the entire state of alabama and some buffoon booked ted nugent there and all the local there's like two gay bars in town one of them's there and some other they're like wow ted nugent really and so the the avondale canceled the concert and people are like wait ted nugent got canceled in birmingham alabama <laughs> so apparently cancel culture is real and all these people have been sitting here for a while. There's a lot going on with the actor Jonathan Majors. He's been dropped by some more people in his uh, circuit. The country music singer Jimmy Allen, who is also black, he faces sexual assault and battery, a lawsuit. He's a multi-platinum, Grammy-nominated country superstar. And some people are arguing uh, this stuff's been going on for a while for both of them in the last few weeks. Um, like Jimmy Allen's manager has broken with him. He and his wife separated uh, in April. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. Some people have argued that, you know what? Uh, when people are black, they get a lot less slack. They get dropped a lot more quickly. I don't know what the deal is in terms of whether they should have been dropped, whether people should have tried to pause or whatever. But if you're arguing that they're treated less fairly than people who are white, it's probably not a hard argument to make. But there is a lot going on, and there is some good news. Director Jafar Panahi, the great Iranian director, had his travel ban lifted. He left Iran for the first time in 14 years. Really? Okay. Yeah, so that was cool. And then it brings us back to Johnny Depp. <clears throat> He's at Cannes at the same time Dior announced a new $20 million deal to keep him as the face of their men's fragrance. It's the biggest pact for a men's fragrance ever. And basically, he was fed it at Cannes. The Europeans were fine with Johnny. I think that's about fair. Does that seem? Yeah, well, I think they're, yeah, they were fine with it. I mean, I think they kind of looked at it and went, you know what? You and your wife or ex-wife, you're both crazy. Uh, and you know what? We'll we see love you, we'll Johnny. See. We love you, Johnny. We don't care. We care about your movies. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. and But let's say cancel culture, not so much. Morgan Wallen, the huge country superstar, he has set one record after another. His new album is still at number one for the 12th week in a row. Uh that's extremely rare. It's like the biggest country album to be at number one in 30 years. Uh, it's amazing. And you can put him on the list with Dave Chappelle, Louis C.K., Mel Gibson. Cancel culture is not running the world. It's not ruining the world. Some people pay a price for things they do. Others get forgiven. 
others, it never stops them at all. So, you know, it just depends on the individual action and how much people care about it and what their fan base is. So, you know, enough with that. That ain't happening. <laughs> are you paying attention to streaming? When you were in con, did you try to watch something? I remember covering the finale of American Idol from my hotel room at the Cannes Film Festival. I remember that, actually. Did you? Did I you, do. Yeah. Did you watch I anything did. or stream anything? Did you try? No, because, and this is, again, you know, it was one of those, uh, one of the reasons you might think, hey, well, why, why didn't you do a show? Is because everything was so like, oh, I've got to be, I've got an 8.30 a.m. screening, a noon screening, then it's 5.30 screening, but then I jump all the way to 9.30 p.m. and then I'm 1 at 11. And it's like, <laughs> how are you supposed to stay awake for all this? Um, Much so, less do a podcast. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, no, I didn't, I didn't stream to answer your question directly and to stop complaining about the timing. Uh, no, I didn't. Well, uh, of some quick streaming news, Paramount Plus with Showtime combined will launch in June, June 27th. It will be about $12 a month in North America. If you want Paramount Plus alone, it'll be six bucks. So Showtime on its own as a streaming app will close down by the end of the year. Paramount Plus is now at about 60 million people. Um, much smaller is AMC, the uh, American Movie Classics channel, which has about 11.5 million subscribers. They actually lost subscribers, which is a little hard to do lately, but they lost 300,000 subscribers last quarter or whatever. H did we talk about Max, by the way? No, well, we did a little bit, but HBO Max, now officially it's happened. HBO Max is now Max. It's now happened. It's 16 bucks for ad-free or 10 bucks with ads. And guess what? The rollout's been a little tricky. I have a friend. Yeah, in especially because we're all creators now. You're a creator. I'm a creator. You know, if you're, if you're talking about Martin Scorsese, if you look at Raging Bull, it was... Uh, Thelma Schoonmacher, uh, Martin Scorsese. Oh, oh, oh yes, the credit, <laughs> you know, it's the like credit snafu. Well, yeah. Well, who did who did what here? You know, <laughs> Robert De Niro. They're all. They had this bizarre switch where instead of saying director, screenwriter, and so on, they just said creators, and everybody yeah. was like uh, thinking it was an insult during the writers' strike. How dare you? And they're like, oh, sorry, never mind. We'll switch it back. <laughs> but yeah. it's going to take a few weeks. But what the hell were they thinking? Why would they bother? It makes it harder. Everywhere else you get the full credits. Why would you want to switch it up and you know do this? It was bizarre. Very strange. But anyway, HBO Max is now Max. It's now available, but not everywhere. And that's creating problems in other parts of the world. I'm getting information from friends in other countries that they've been screwed over. I have a friend in Ecuador. The streaming app for just Max is not available yet. So they had HBO Max and it said, all right, switch, download now, switch it over. They're like, okay. So they did. And now it's shut down. So they couldn't watch Succession. Then they tried to call and cancel their subscription. The operators didn't know what was going on. They couldn't get through. Very confused. He's like, enough with this. And he turned to Netflix only to find out. Maybe he's sharing his password, Wolfgang. Maybe you shouldn't do that, Wolfgang. Because sometimes <laughs> when he goes on to Netflix, all five names are taken up by him and his friends, and he couldn't even get on to Netflix. And then when he did, he got a notice saying, are you the actual person in the actual geolocation for this Netflix account? Because they are cracking down on password sharing. It's really happening. It's coming to Ecuador. Hasn't come to Colombia yet. Uh, but it is happening all over the world. So if you're having trouble with HBO Max, like you paid for HBO Max and now it's Max and you can't get it, tell us. 
Yes, you can write to us, dirt at show. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to go through that again. But uh, you know what? It's it's on our website, showbizsandbox.com. So def- definitely check that out. And Netflix, by the way, with ads, it's 7 bucks. The standard fare is about $15. That's in North America. They announced that their ad tier has about 5 million subscribers worldwide. They say out of all new subscribers, one out of four are opting for the ad tier. They believe those are people who would not have signed up otherwise. And by the way... They're making more money from those people. Why is the that? Average rev- the average revenue per user uh-huh. for because because basically you're paying you're paying to watch your ads. $7 to watch ads so their average revenue is already seven dollars uh and then of course you're you know it, it winds up being like well now we made eighteen dollars off of you because of all the ads you watched that may not keep up depending on the new territories but that's Correct. interesting and it may be that the arpu increased because say you're in india i don't know if they even offer that there yet but it might be a country with a really low entry fee so you know adding on ads you might as well right to say you know what you're all going to pay ads unless you pay even more for no ads you, know, you get an ad and you get an ad. Yes. D- Disney Plus is still losing subscribers, but that's really because of the cricket deal in India. They lost 4 million subscribers. They're now at 157 million worldwide, but their losses also shrank. Their losses in the direct-to-consumer category, which is like Disney Plus and stuff, went from losing $1.5 billion two quarters ago. They lost $1.1 billion last quarter. This quarter, they only lost $660 million, which is, hey... That's a lot better than $1.5 billion. So they hope that keeps shrinking down. They have combined Hulu and Disney into one app, but not ESPN. I don't know why. They are dumping shows and movies and miniseries from their platform. The list runs to 100-plus titles of TV shows, movies, and miniseries that they have removed from the Disney Plus platform. They don't have to support them. They don't have to pay residuals. Uh, everybody's got to rewrite their contract. If I make a show for you and you disappear it, I'm like, well, I want it back. You know, if you're not going to show it anywhere eventually, I'd like it back. But we'll have to see you what's know, going Disney on Disney says they will actually give you a DVD of your show if you ask <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> I'm serious. Uh, and, well, the reason that they do that is because when you're taking a, a, a charge against it, you, you, you generally ha- you can't take it all at once. You can't say, well, it costs us $30 million. And right. we're gonna- no, you do it like, okay, $10 million this year. And, and, and you do it down and down and down each time you sell it uh so but the only way to get the full 30 million dollars this year is if you say okay we're taking an impairment charge on this and guess what you can do that but then you can't have it on your platform (laughs) disney says by the way that in north america where they raised their subscription prices pretty substantially they basically didn't lose anybody they lost about three hundred thousand subscribers out of 46.3 million total so less than one percent left after a price rise that is churn they can happily deal with I mean, that's, that's a big deal. If they can raise their price and not lose subscribers, they're very happy. Yeah, it's a big deal. I mean, like a really big deal. Yeah, oh. it's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then it is time for Big Deal or Big Whoop Hour weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story in what The Hollywood Reporter describes as a big roll of the dice, NBC will stream every Olympic event live. That's right, live. On Peacock, the 2024 Summer Games take place in Paris. So if you want to watch a game of badminton that starts at 10 a.m., you can watch it at, you know, 
4 a.m. in New York City, or Michael can get up even earlier and catch it at 3 a.m. in Alabama, or I can watch it at 1 a.m. in L.A. Not going to happen. A primetime event in Paris at 8 p.m. airing during peak TV hours in much of Western Europe will stream live on Peacock at 2 p.m. in New York City and 11 a.m. in L.A. And if I give you $5 and you give me change for... um, But in any case, Telemundo has Spanish language rights. NBC will also air nine hours of coverage during the day, including some major live events like gymnastics. That's kind of cool. Primetime will be the place to watch heart-tugging stories about the athletes and their triumphs and travails, (laughs) profiles and courage and other packages. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big deal as long as Mary Carello is on 24 hours a day. She's on right now covering the French Open. I love her. I think she's great. Uh, I don't think this is bold. I think this is inevitable. It's inescapable. How could you do it any other way? It would be ridiculous. Anyone can get the results the moment they happen. You can't present almost live events in prime time anymore. This is the only smart option, the right to do it. All right. Well, yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, it's like we're going to stream the Olympics. It's like you weren't already doing that. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, this next story got a lot of, uh, of play during the Cannes Film Festival. Actors around the world are dealing with the new normal of casting. Instead of being called in for an audition and getting the chance to read for a casting director who can coach actors and give them immediate feedback or ask for another spin on the same scene, they're being asked to, you know, self-tape. To be or not to be. Yeah, we, how, well... How- you're going we another way. It. You're going another yeah, way. We, okay. Yeah, okay, okay. we needed it in German, but that's okay. Uh, you know, this is where you send in a tape and maybe never hear anything again until the final. Oh, yeah, no. As you say, Michael, we went in a different direction. Now, actors in the UK are calling for some new guidelines, but they're doing it anonymously because they don't want to be blackballed. Among the many new stipulations, they want the entire script. They want at least four working days. And by the way, not weekends. And they, they want to be able to submit their recordings after those four working days. They want the audition to be deleted when the process is over or at least be asked to keep it on file. They want to know if it's been seen and who, if anyone, it's been sent on to. And hey, just tell them, yes, no, or maybe they're adults. They can handle it. Big deal or big whoop? <laughs> well, it's a big whoop. It has almost nothing to do with self-taping. Yes, exactly. They audition or they send in a tape and then they hear nothing for a while until maybe they're told, yeah, sorry, no. Um, You know, nobody ever says no to you because until they cast it, it's always, I don't know, maybe. We don't think we're going with you, but we're not going to say no because we haven't cast it yet. Uh, The stuff about wanting the whole script, not going to happen. But they're like, we have to know the context. It's like they don't always have a full script, certainly not if it's a TV series. Uh, They want four working days. That seems reasonable, and that does have to do with self-taping. They want the audition to be deleted when the process is over, to which I say, why? If a casting director likes you and wants to save your audition so they remember you or can look look back and go, oh, yeah, that guy who did that or that woman who did that. You should be happy with that. Plus, they just keep everything because they want to have records of what they did and who they saw. Um, Wanted to know who's seen it, who's been sent on to it. It's like, no, sorry, you're not in charge. You're not going to be given a, a chain of, of a, a possession of the, it's not a document from the government. It's not going to have a chain of possession. You know, you're not going to get a, a, a Bitcoin blockchain record of everywhere it went. You're just going to get an anonymous yes or no eventually. Sorry about that. But I do empathize with self-taping and how they want to be in with casting directors. Guess what? Casting directors want to be with you too. They love meeting with actors. Don't blame them. 
This is the studio. It's not about casting directors, but it does allow them to cast a wider net. It does allow people who are physically challenged or not living in New York and L.A. and London a chance to be uh, seen for something that they might not have otherwise. So there are pluses and minuses. It's the only way I'm going to get to play young Han Solo. Let's face <laughs> That's it. right. And one casting director told Variety, uh, auditioning is becoming less of a creative role and more of an admin role. So guess what? It's not fun for casting directors either. Walt Disney, big deal or big, no, I'm just kidding. Walt Disney and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are not going to play nice anytime soon. Disney is suing the state and Florida court. And in now federal, Dis- federal court. Oh yeah. They're also doing it in federal court, by the way. So there you go. Federal court, Florida court, doesn't matter if they're suing each other. And now Disney said it is scrapping plans for a $1 billion office complex that included moving some 2,000 employees to Orlando from California. That's a major project, which involved major tax incentives from the state and a major influx of good jobs. Employees in the divisions involved were already unhappy about the need to move from California to Florida, and the actions of Governor DeSantis reportedly made those complaints even more passionate. Disney pointed out it has plans to invest $17 billion in its Florida theme parks over the next decade, and, well, they hope they can still do so. Nice state you got there. Uh, Shame if anything should happen to it. Like, I don't know, your largest employer decides to stop investing. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, It's a a sort of a big whoop, big deal. Just as Florida said, well, you know what? Why are... Why is Disney in charge of its own safety inspections? That is a reasonable thing for them to change, but they didn't do it for all the amusement parks. They did it just for Disney. So they're doing the thing that's reasonable for all the wrong reasons and in the wrong way and targeting one company, which should be illegal and probably is. It probably is. You can't make a law that says Michael can't do something. Right. No, that's quite true. And in this case... Disney had made this announcement of moving people to Florida. People were very unhappy about it. They were resisting. They were dragging their feet. Now they've got an excuse with Bob Iger back in charge to say, you know, we're just going to dump that. And they can blame the governor and gain points for that. That's a win-win for them. Uh, But not all good news. Their big project, the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser, that's their hotel immersive experience that was obscenely expensive, like six. $5,000 for a couple or $6,000 for a family of four to go stay in the Star Wars hotel at Disney World and be immersed for two days in this experience. Disastrously expensive, excludes even most of the people who can still afford to go to Disney World, way too elaborate, and they've just said, yeah, you're right, we're pulling the plug. (laughs) I like the way you're, yeah, no, that's not good. Yeah, it didn't happen. Well, you know what? Are, are you doing that marvelous Mrs. Maisel dance, by the way? Are you doing I'm that? not, but I could. Yeah. Well, when Amazon gobbled up, uh, you know, MGM, it bought a big catalog with a bunch of movies and TV shows ripe for exploitation. I mean, think Rocky and James Bond and Pink Panther and so much more. But it also bought a distribution arm. And that arm is ready to exploit the Amazon catalog. Movies like The Tomorrow War and TV shows like The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel with its now popular dance, or Goliath, which stars Billy Bob Thornton. Well, they might ask, they might just work in classic syndication style, stripping the the shows five days a week on a TV channel, or maybe on basic cable, or maybe on a fast channel. That's, you know, free ad-supported television. Though you don't need a distributor to do that as such, I don't think, at least. Uh, Anyway, it's got a big catalog, and it's getting bigger every day. So 
my suggestion, keep it on your platform and you have to pay residuals. Take it off the platform and it doesn't have to disappear forever. You can sell it all over the world. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big whoop. I mean, you should be taking advantage of your catalog and thinking only on your streamer is old thinking. But like Netflix, we said that at the time. They had the reboot of One Day at a Time. Uh, They went for four seasons, I think, or just three because they didn't want to pay the big up upgrade when they went to four seasons and we were saying what about syndication that would pair perfectly on nick at night with the original one day at a time it would play well in syndication why aren't you thinking about the fact that you're going to have this in your library and nobody who subscribes to netflix would be angry if at some point you got 100 episodes and then decided to sell it off and have it strip on a basic cable channel it's another revenue stream people see the netflix name it's a win-win for everyone but boy Do people make money if they sell Mrs. Maisel? Nobody's contract anticipated that. Nobody's contract on Goliath anticipated it being sold into syndication. We said it before. We say it again. Those contracts need to be reworked. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's that's an understatement. We've been saying it all, all the time. Well, it's official. Actor Matthew McConaughey has been cast as the lead in, and here's the thing, the crime thriller, The Rivals of Amzia King. Wait, wait. I thought that it was Yellowstone. Isn't he cast in Yellowstone? Okay, everyone has their eye on that Yellowstone sequel, but Michael is very excited that McConaughey is making this indie film set in rural Oklahoma in which McConaughey plays Amzia King, whoever the heck that is, which, uh, by the way, is, is... What is this? And why is it apparently a big deal and not a big whoop? As our one-time co-host Karen would have said, actor gets role, big whoop. (laughs) Well, I'm excited for this because it's written and directed by Andrew Patterson. His debut film was The Vast of Night from 2020. He co-wrote, directed, edited, and produced that indie film. It was set in New Mexico in the 1950s. It was a very clever spin on War of the Worlds, the radio broadcast more than the book or movie. It was just extremely well done. It was my favorite film of the year. Uh, It made fantastic use of every penny it had. And it played to Slamdance, to Toronto. It got a commercial release. Think the Twilight Zone. It's a very clever movie. You can watch it on Amazon Prime or with ads on Freevee. And it won an award at my annual event, The Iras. I named it the best film of 2020. I thought, wow, this director is really talented. I can't wait to see what they do next. And apparently, Matthew McConaughey agreed. Cord cutting is real. Big deal. Or big, <laughs> I mean, uh, we've long argued that complaining when people cancel their cable TV subscription but sign up for YouTube TV, like, you know, like you did, Michael, mm-hmm. uh, that is not cord cutting. Well... Any, it's not court cutting at least any more than switching from DirecTV to Comcast is. TV is TV, and people pay for their bundles one way or another. But now the industry is tracking total TV packages, including streaming bundles, and the news is not good. More than 40% of all U.S. households do not have any TV bundle. That's shocking. Maybe, That's yeah, shocking. May, yeah, I mean, not even a YouTube thingy. Uh, maybe they have an antenna and watch broadcast TV over the air. Maybe they subscribe to Netflix and ESPN Plus and Apple TV and Disney Plus. But what they don't have is any TV bundle. I've got to cancel my cable. And anyway, uh, what they don't have, they don't have cable. They don't have satellite. They don't even have OTT bundles like, you know, like you do, Michael, Google or Hulu or YouTube. Only 58.5% of households have a pay TV bundle. And that's the lowest percentage since 1992. Collectively, they lost another 2.3 million subscribers in the first quarter. And I, is the second quarter over yet because I really have to cancel my cable. Big deal or big whoop? 
Well, it's a big deal because for a long time we're like, well, are they really falling because people are signing up? It doesn't matter where they pay for their bundle if they pay for a bundle. Well, guess what? You joked about how high prices you want to switch. YouTube TV just raised their prices again substantially twice in the last three years or two years or something. I mean, it's getting to be the equivalent of a basic cable package, high prices. And when people cut the cord from cable because of high prices and they switch to over the top, then they raise prices and they raise prices back on the basic cable and the people who are left, which means more people are cutting. My YouTube bundle has jumped dramatically in cost. It's getting to the point where I won't be saving any money compared to cable. How about cheaper bundles? It's driven mostly by sports, which are too damn expensive. Offer me a no sports package that's $20 cheaper, and I'd be thrilled. I would jump on it. But guess what? David Zaslav at Com is like, you know what we need to do? He's going to solve it all for us. He's, we need to, like, we've got all these streaming channels like Netflix and Disney Plus and, and, and Max and Someone's going to bundle them together. I bet they get bundled together somewhere. So you bundle them together and pay a certain price. Uh, if we don't do it, someone else is going to do it. And we're all going to get bundled. I'm like, yeah, yeah. It was called cable. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway. I don't, I don't see how they could bundle together without breaking antitrust rules. But anyway. Broadway is back. <laughs> well, almost. The 2022-2023 season ended with $1.577 billion in gross ticket sales. That's a hefty jump over the pandemic era, of course, about, uh, and it's about 14% off the pre-COVID high of $1.8 billion. Uh, more importantly, we've got some new shows that have legs, and Juliet and Shucked from the current season looks promising with MJ the Musical and Six. They're definite long runners. The jury is still out on Kimberly Akimbo, which will benefit greatly from a Tony win for Best Musical. Other current new shows are very iffy or guaranteed short runs, though... Who knows? Maybe revivals like Parade and Sweeney Todd can survive cast changes, though we wouldn't bet on it. And, you know, hope springs eternal with the Britney Spears musical Once Upon a Time. Once Upon a One More Time. Oh, jeez. Oh, you know what? Whatever. Oops, oops, you did it again. Yep, I messed it up again. Well, that's in previews right now. In the summer offering potential hits like the David Byrne musical Here Lies Love and Back to the Future... You know, they look prominent. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal. Broadway's bouncing back. They don't even have as many tourists yet as they would like. But some shows are clicking and turning into long runners. Here Lies Love, I saw off-Broadway years ago. It's terrific. I'm very excited for that. I think that'll work. I hope it does. Back to the Future is commercial. It's not a great show, but it was better than I thought. So, you know, Broadway, you know, uh, hope springs eternal, like you said. But the New York State just extended their Broadway tax credits for two more years, meaning you invest in a show, that show will get certain tax breaks that really make it easier to sell it to investors. That helps the launching of new shows, and it's crucial for post-pandemic investors. Broadway, of course, wants it to continue indefinitely. I'm no economist, and you could every business wants to have special tax breaks, but since every new show is like a new launch of a business, they're all starting from scratch, there's a good argument to be made for this one. Well, that wraps up Big Deal or Big Wolf for this week and moves us along into Inside Baseball. Inside Baseball is where we, you know, we, we uh, explain what the headlines mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And now this story. Oh, my gosh. Well, why don't I read it so you can tell us what you think uh, first? Because I, I don't even know where to. I mean, this could this could have been the whole show. In a court case that may have a major impact on fair use in the arts, the Supreme Court ruled that the late Andy Warhol and his estate was a copycat. Okay, 
They used some fancy legal terms, but that's the gist of it, sort of. They weren't making fair use. No fair, says the court, in a 7-2 ruling that saw Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor on opposite sides of the ruling, very unusual for those two liberal justices. The lawsuit arose out of a piece of work Andy Warhol created for Vanity Fair around the time of the film Purple Rain starring Prince. They licensed a 1981 image shot by well-known rock photographer Lynn Goldsmith for Newsweek. She shot it for Newsweek. They licensed it from her. She was paid a one-time fee of $400, and they told her she would be given credit. They would use the image only once for that issue. Andy Warhol took it. He cropped it. He colorized it in his Warholian manner, and they used it on the cover. He also created 16 different images that ended up being shown in museums, sold to private collectors, and so on. Vanity Fair chose one for the cover, and everyone was happy. But Decades later, Prince died. Vanity Fair turned out a special issue about Prince, and they paid the Andy Warhol Foundation $10,250 to use a different image from the series that Warhol created. They didn't credit her. They didn't give her any money. And she sued. And the Supreme Court ruled that Warhol had not substantially altered the image to constitute fair use. Even famous artists have to pay by the rules, said the court, especially when they're doing it for commercial purposes. So they were making a distinction between Andy Warhol altering the image and putting it in a museum versus being paid to illustrate a story in a magazine, which is the very same use that her photographs were used by other publications like Newsweek. So that was the ruling. The RIAA applauded the decision, which it says strengthens copyright and benefits songwriters and recording artists, but it has huge implications for artificial intelligence. We can do this sort of thing in the blink of an eye. So what did you think? You heard about it at con. Said, Whoa, what's going on here? I think this is going to make it uh, very difficult for people to uh, use. Fair use is pretty much dead, essentially, with, with this ruling. Completely? Well, not completely dead, but, I mean, now you really have to... Uh, to me, I thought, hey, the Supreme Court doesn't understand fair use. That's certainly what uh, uh, Elena Kagan said, right? Uh, uh, which was on which side? Uh, I think it was Elena Kagan and John Roberts who were on the seventy. They're like, you don't understand fair use. You don't understand art. And the other side said, we don't care if it's Andy Warhol. You still have to do fair use. Well, you still have to pay, basically. Uh, it doesn't matter that you've changed the, the image. It doesn't matter that you're... Uh, I mean, basically, uh, Richard Prince, he would... He, you know, at least some of his art would just be completely... Not, not, uh, he takes passages from books and paints them, them, uh, they're not the book, they're a painting with, you know, uh, uh, a sentence or two. They basically say, well, you got to pay for the book. You got to pay well, the rights well, to the book. Not in this case, because they weren't using it in the same commercial way. One of their big points was that she uses her photographs to illustrate stories in newspapers and magazines and websites. The, Andy Warhol's art was being used to illustrate a story in a magazine, just like hers. So it was the same commercial use. Nobody is talking about the fact that they say it's okay that he has these altered images in museums and sold to collectors of museums and made millions of dollars off of them. They're not questioning that, apparently. That's not suddenly going to be unacceptable. Um, but when using it in this particularly narrow commercial use for the same reason it was created in the first place, they say you have to pay. I don't understand why fair use comes up at all. They had a contract. They said, we're going to use your photo. We're going to pay you. We're going to credit you. 
We're only going to use it once on the cover of Vanity Fair, in Vanity Fair, to illustrate this story about Prince. They did it. Then they used it again in Vanity Fair to illustrate a story about Prince, and they didn't pay her, and they didn't credit her. So clearly that's in violation of the contract. Why does fair use have to come into it? To me, they obviously violated the contract. There's no way doing the same thing the second time. They could say, well, this time it's different. Well, how? You know, they didn't, they didn't, they did the same thing they said they wouldn't do. They would only use it once. They would only alter it once and they would give her credit and they would pay her. Then they did it again. So they're not questioning Andy Warhol's use of it to create a piece of art in a museum or to sell to private collectors. But to me, they clearly violated the contract. I don't even know why it got to the Supreme Court. But it's another fair use issue. The Supreme Court is unlikely to accept a case against Google. The company Genius, which is a company that posts lyrics online, they either get lyrics from the creators, the songwriters, or they get lyrics from transcribing songs that are on the radio, and they post them on their website. They also pay to the copyright holder for being able to post those lyrics on their website. They pay them a fee. Their whole business is people come to Genius to look up song lyrics, and then they see an ad. That's how they make their money. Well, Google... Apparently, they say Google's breaking the rules that they had with Google by copying all the song lyrics. If you look up a song in Google and you get the genius um, result, in the genius result, you can see all the lyrics before you go to the genius website. So you see the Google ads, you never have to click over to genius and they lose out. And they're saying, well, Google's breaking the rules. And the courts have ruled, eh, you know what? Uh, do federal laws and copyright trump state contracts and all that? We don't know, but it's probably not going to come to the Supreme Court. I don't see why not. They pay copyright holders to display lyrics. Now Google is doing using it in their search engine, so you never have to click on the link, and they're benefiting from it, whereas Genius is not. They're not paying for copyright, whereas Genius is. But that case apparently is not going to go to the Supreme Court either. There's no question that the Andy Warhol case had a lot of people talking about AI and the implications and Whatever poor understanding I have of it, it's clearly a significant case because it got a ton of attention. Yes, that is uh, correct. It did get a ton of attention because it's, it just made fair use even harder to figure out. Uh, so copyright, I don't think, is dead. You said copyright is dead. I don't think so. Well, uh, fair use is dead. Copyright's still there. Fair use is dead. <clears throat> ah, fair use is dead. Should we have an obit for it? Uh, yes. Okay. So born a poor law in the South. I don't know. Where, where, where was I headed with it? This is our obituary section uh, where Michael will rattle off names and... Sperling does not care about history. I, I don't Sperling care about history. Sperling is rude to the dead. The I, will way, talk, I will talk about Ed Ames next week. British author Martin Amos died at 73. He died that? the day after the film Zone of Interest based on That's his novel right. debuted to a remarkable acclaim at the Cannes Film Festival. Talk about timing. Well, so, bad timing. Yeah. On, I guess, well, like, you know, and go out on yeah. top. The soap opera star Jacqueline Zeman died at 70. She played Bobby Spencer on General Hospital for decades. It was the role of a lifetime. She was on General Hospital through most of her life when that show was the biggest daytime soap of all time, and I remember her well. Filmmaker Kenneth Anger died at 96. He's an experimental filmmaker. I watched his movie Fireworks, which took him to court in 1946 for being uh, subversive because it had homoeroticism in it. You can see if you watch this 50-minute film why David Lynch and John Waters loved him. It's crazy. Uh, but his biggest, most successful and enduring work is the book Hollywood Babylon. Do you know that book? I do, yes. 
It's, it's made up. <laughs> it's supposed to be nonfiction about all the great scandals of Hollywood, but it's filled with half-truths, rumors, and occasionally he gets it right. But it was so outrageous. The more crazy the story, the more anger loved it and put it in. Many of its stories have been disproven, but they remain embedded in Hollywood lore. It was a bestseller in France. It was banned in the U.S. for a decade. It was republished in the 70s and a sensation ever since. He wrote a sequel in the 80s. He claimed to be working on a third one for the rest of his life. When someone else wrote Hollywood Babylon, it's back in 2008. He was angry, but being into the occult, he just put a curse on them. He didn't bother suing. He just put a curse on them. There was even a TV series based on it with Tony Curtis in syndication talking about famous Hollywood scandals and sharing his own anecdotes. Believe it or not. Uh, Helmut Berger died. He was a big star of films by Visconti and De Sica. He died at 78. Extremely good looking. He was also uh, an openly queer actor uh, when that was very unusual, as Deadline put it. Openly bisexual in an era when such public declarations, I'm sorry, which such public declarations were a rarity. Berger had headline-making relations with Visconti, Maria, Marissa Berenson, the model Francesca Guidato, dancer Rudolf Nureyev, Tab Hunter, Ursula Andress, and allegedly both Mick Jagger and Bianca Jagger, though not necessarily at the same time. And NFL legend and actor Jim Brown died at 87. Just one of the great football players, arguably the greatest of all time. A fun actor in some action films, especially in the 70s. Right up to He's Got Game and Mars Attacks. And in a very important figure in the civil rights era. I interviewed him, actually. Oh, that's very interesting. Was it for his book or what was it for? No, I think it was for Any Given Sunday. Oh, right. He was in Any Given Sunday as well. He also later in life talked in his memoir about being physically abusive of women and that he was wrong. That has put a stain on his career and his record as it should, but he is an important figure. And uh, Rita Lee of the Brazilian Singer, she was part of Os Mutantes, one of the most important groups in music history in Brazil, part of the Tropicalia movement. She died at 75. TV and film director Liani Chazo died at 74. A very important Latin filmmaker who helped launch a lot of careers. He worked with Elizabeth Pena, Benjamin Bratt. Uh, he did a, a passion project about the great singer Hector Laveau that starred Mark Antony and Jennifer Lopez. He had a cool career. You can look it all up online at our website. Andy Work, the basis for The Smiths is dead. Oh, and somebody named Tina Turner. But Sperling's telling me, we got to wrap it up. We don't have time for the queen of rock and roll. Wait a second. Everybody knows who Tina Turner was. She was simply the best. She didn't <laughs> need any another hero. <laughs> I still remember being in my bedroom in South Florida with my fairly new stereo in 1983, a song came on the radio and I stopped dead in my tracks going, who is this? What is this? And rarely did it happen in South Florida on the radio, but at the end of the song, they actually told me that was Tina Turner singing Let's Stay Together, a song by Al Green, though I didn't know that at the time. It was a great song. It was the beginning to her releasing Private Dancer and having one of the greatest comebacks in showbiz history. So if you want to celebrate Tina Turner, start right there with the album Private Dancer. Oh, yeah. No, that is without a doubt the album to start with. Yes. Although, yeah. And, and our in-house film critic, Aaron Rich, says her performance in the rock and roll film Gimme Shelter is one of the greatest live performances in film history. I certainly won't disagree with him. It's magnetic. And you should definitely see Gimme Shelter, and you should definitely subscribe to us that you don't miss next week's uh, episode, and maybe even a special episode with Stephen Garrett, where uh, he and I might might sit down and talk about films we saw in Cannes. Which... Because you gotta, you got to do your journalistic uh, make good. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but uh, you know what? You can subscribe to our show any place they give podcasts away for free. Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, anywhere podcasts can be downloaded. Usually you can find our show. And if you can't, let us know. You know what? Go to our website, showbizsandbox.com, where links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found, as well as all those ways to contact us and let us know whether you can or can't find our podcast. Uh, dirt at Showbiz Sandbox is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The voicemail to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. At Showbiz Sandbox is where we can be found on Twitter. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like us on Facebook. All of that information, again, on our website, ShowbizSandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website. Who is MGMT.com? Michael Giltz can be found on his own website uh, every week. It's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's the Smiths are great. They are. And, 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 and Andy Rourke is dead, so check out the Smiths. Well, and if you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. (laughs) 